Our reading today is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 9 to 17. As Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. The Pharisees saw this. They asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunken cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new skins, and both are preserved. This is the Gospel of Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for uh, the chance to meet together this morning. Last week was so wonderful, so incredible, after such a long time of not being able to meet together, finally being able to be together physically to sing your praises uh, and come before you in prayer and hear your word. And yet I wonder whether very quickly it will um, will lose the significance and the joy of what that is. I pray that we wouldn't. I pray that we would continue this morning to to revel in it, to be thankful for it. And now as we turn to your word and think about those words that Anne just read to us, please by your spirit work within us. Don't just let these be words we hear with our ears, but let them be truths that drive into our hearts and change our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, One of the things that people find difficult in life is the thought that things won't change. Change is an odd thing, isn't it? Sometimes it's the fact that things change that cause us difficulty and stress. Other times it's the thought that things won't change. Last week, if you were here, we stopped looking through Matthew's Gospel, which we've been doing for a while now, and we did a one-off on hope. And the idea of hope is that when things are bad and look like they're not going to change, hope is knowing what the future is and knowing they will change one day, and that's good, knowing that hope is a coming. Well, for the same reason, when you think things aren't going to change or can't change, that can cause difficulty and stress, the feeling that no change is a coming. And it's not just situations that are affected by that, it's people too. We sometimes think people can't or won't change. You see young children exhibiting bad manners or bad behaviours and uh, you're tempted to write them off and forget that they're going to mature and develop and change. Once a cheater, always a cheater. If he's done that, he'll do it again. If she's done that, she won't stop, she'll carry on. That There's this thought that character and personality and behaviours are set in stone. We think it of other people's 
they'll always be like that. We think of it of ourselves. I'll never be able to escape this. But Christianity is a faith of change. And I want you to be confident of that this morning. Change is fundamental to the heart of Christianity. Without change, there is no Christian faith. And change remains part of the Christian journey all the way through, at least until the new creation. How do we describe becoming a Christian? We describe it in a number of ways, but perhaps the best known way and the most powerful way is being born again. That is a radical change. You change. We've all been born once, but to become a Christian is to be born again. That's a drastic, dramatic change. And it's a huge part of the the Christian life. You, You then receive a new heart and the Spirit of God. Then what happens once you're a Christian you've had that change? We continue to change. Theologians call that what? Sanctification, which is just a fancy way of saying you become more and more like the Lord Jesus. We change. The old self dies and we become more, as the Spirit works within us, more like the Lord Jesus. So the way you become a Christian is change, new birth. The way you carry on as a Christian is change, made more and more into the image of Jesus. If you've ever thought you can't change then Jesus is what you need You need in your life. And it's one of the things that I love about this passage. In this passage, there's a person called Matthew that we're going to think about in a moment. And I think that Matthew would have had no idea on the day that this happened to him that his life was about to change forever, that he was going to meet Jesus and his life would never be the same. He would have woken up that day hated by nearly everyone, and we'll talk about why he was hated by nearly everyone, and in all probability hating himself, because he had every reason to hate himself, and he had no idea that everything was going to change because he was going to meet Jesus. That's what Jesus does. That's what following Jesus does. It did it for Matthew. did it for me. It can do it for you. Now, there's two parts of today's reading. There's the first part, which is really about Matthew. It's got Matthew at the tax collector's booth. And then there's a meal at Matthew's house. But then there's a second part where some of John the Baptist's disciples come and ask Jesus a question. And I want to treat them this morning in reverse order. We're going to start with the second half of the verses. And I'll explain why later. But we're going to start with the second half and then go to the first. So the first part I want us to look at it is verses 15 to 17, if that can be up uh, clear. And... If I had a heading for it, it's Jesus changes the game. Jesus changes the game. It's all about the game and how you play it. Well, Jesus changes the game. That's the upshot of what he says here. And I'm saying that clearly at the front now because a lot of people get confused with what Jesus says here. He's asked a question and then he he goes into all these different things and people wonder how it answers the question and how it makes sense. So let's talk through it. Some of John's disciples, we're told, and I take it that this is John the Baptist's disciples, come and they say, Jesus, we fast. Now, what's fasting? Fasting is when you stop eating in order to have a closer relationship with God. You you stop eating to try and stop thinking about the physical things to realize there's more to life and draw closer to the Lord. So the John the Baptist's disciples say, we fast. Then they say, the Pharisees fast, the religious leaders of the day. But your disciples, Jesus, don't fast. Why? And to answer this question, Jesus, it's odd, isn't it? He, he kind of gives three illustrations, three separate pictures that he gives. And it, it's not clear at first how they even answer the question. But basically what I want you to see is all three give the same answer. 
There's a couple of variations, but he's really giving one answer in three different pictures. The first picture is of a wedding. And he says that when you've got a wedding, when the bridegroom's there, who's one of the central figures in the wedding, the guests celebrate, they don't mourn. In other words, what he's saying is, when, the, when you're in celebration mode because your guests at a wedding and you're with the bridegroom, you eat. I like this picture. I understand this picture. Now he says a time will come when the bridegroom will be taken, then you don't eat. But when you're with the bridegroom at a wedding, you celebrate and you eat. Now in that illustration, it's very clear, Jesus is the bridegroom. His disciples are the guests. And he's saying, you're saying, why would you fast? I'm saying, because they're with me and it's a time to celebrate. Now, that's very interesting because in the Old Testament, the image of bridegroom is used a lot, but it's always used of God being the bridegroom. Jesus here uses it of himself. But he goes on to say, as I said, verse 15, that when the groom is taken away, then the guests will fast. He's obviously referring to his death. Now, I will just mention very quickly here, I'm not going to dwell on this, so if you've got questions, come and see me afterwards. Uh, Some people take from this that Christians then should fast. But I don't take that from these verses. I'm not saying Christians shouldn't fast. I'm just saying that doesn't come from these verses for two reasons. One, he says, when you're with me, you shouldn't fast. When I'm away, I'm not. Christians always have Jesus with them because they have the Holy Spirit, called sometimes in the New Testament the Spirit of Christ. He's always with me. Uh, But the second one is, Jesus isn't giving instructions on fasting here. Their question is on fasting. He's using fasting to give a much more important principle to know and understand. And it's about who he is. So he's not really dealing with fasting. But that's the first image. Leave that for a moment and go to the second one. He then says in verse 16, Don't sew a patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. That old nutbag. I mean, we've all done that, haven't we? I don't even know what that means. But presumably it means if you've got a new um, uh, bit of cloth which hasn't shrunk with an old garment which has reached maximum shrinkability and you try and put it together, at some stage it's not. Hands up if you understand that explanation. What? Whoa. Doesn't matter if you don't understand it. You don't really have to understand it, nor do you have to understand wine containers, which is the next illustration, where he talks about wineskins, which are things that you keep wine in. I don't drink wine either, so I don't understand that. But I know what's going on in these pictures. It's a picture of of incompatibility. There's seven syllables there. Incompatibility. That's what's going on. It's clear that Jesus is saying he's the patch that can't be put on the old garment. He's the new wine that can't be poured into the old wineskins. So it's clear that Jesus is the thing that can't be added to the old. But what's the old then? What's the old garment or the old wineskins? Well, in the context of these verses, it's fasting. He's saying you can't just fast and tack it on to me. Now, fasting is about a relationship with God. And so I don't think Jesus is just talking about fasting here. Fasting is just the the illustration of the principle that when you think you relate to God under the old system, the old ways, by fasting or by rituals or by actions, he's saying, no, 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 it's different. It's through me now. And he is so important that you can't just tack these other other things and add them to him. He is primary. He is prior. He is first and the priority. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, in other words, he's the one that changes the game. It's all different now because of Jesus and who he is. 
Now think about what he's saying. It's incredible. Because remember the first one, he's saying that he's the bridegroom and if he's around, it's cause to celebrate and if he's not around, it's reason to mourn. Do you see what Jesus is saying about himself in these three pictures? It's breathtaking. To point out how incredible it is, imagine if I was to say it to you. Imagine if after the service this morning you came up to me and said, Jay, I've been thinking about my relationship with God. Should I fast? And I said, not if I'm around. (laughs) And more than that, don't even worry about fasting. Because I'm here and I change the way you relate to God. And I change it so fundamentally, it's not about fasting anymore and rituals and what you do. I'm everything. Think about how you would, (laughs) I think it would be a short conversation, and you would walk off and you would be right. You don't claim this about yourself. It's breathtaking what he's saying here. But he is claiming it of himself because he changes the game. It's a different ball game when Jesus is here. They were playing basketball, now they're playing rugby league. Rugby league in that illustration is Jesus. (laughs) With God now... It's not that you do some fasting and combine it with some other rituals and add a pinch of Jesus. No, Jesus is everything. Everything else comes under him. He changes it fundamentally. It's an incredible statement that he makes. He's either deluded or he's arrogant or he's absolutely accurate about his own importance. And I can tell you as someone who's been a Christian and followed him for over 25 years, he's accurate. That's who he is. That's how important he is. And so now you don't have a relationship with God now primarily through meditation or fasting or through actions or rituals. It's through Jesus. And everything else is even not in the ballgame. Now, I've started with that one because I think what happens with Matthew is a demonstration of this. Because Matthew is someone who will have a relationship with God now, not based on fasting, not based on him sharing the Lord's Supper with others, not based on church attendance or knowing his Bible or anything else of the old garments or old wineskins. He becomes right with God. His life changes because he encounters the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Because he is called by the game changer, by the one that changes everything. And so the second thing, the first thing is Jesus changes the game. The second thing I want you to see from the first verses in our reading this morning is what the game changer came to do. He came to call sinners. He came to call sinners. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, last week we had a a different kind of service because we were all here together and we stopped the series in Matthew's Gospel and we did a one-off on hope. So we've got to think back two weeks ago for the verses that came just before ours. But if you watched that service, we weren't all together, but we we watched it. If you watched that service, the verses just before ours was Jesus healing the paralytic man, the man who was paralysed. But if you remember that, that wasn't the key thing he did. He forgave him his sins. And remember, that was the key part. He said, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, get up, pick up your mat and walk. So the key thing was that he forgave his sins. So if you were reading through Matthew's gospel, you get to those verses, you see Jesus heal the paralyzed man and forgive him his sins. The question you would have is, well, who's Jesus going to forgive? Is it just paralyzed people he's going to forgive? 
Is it just people who've got great friends because it was his friends who brought him to Jesus? Is it just people that deserve it, who, um, who haven't been too bad? Well, these verses, these very next verses, start to answer that question. So in verse 9, we find Jesus come across a tax collector called Matthew. And Matthew's sitting in his booth, sometimes called Levi in a couple of the other Gospels. But don't let that worry you. There's lots of double names going on. Simon and Peter and Saul and Paul and all of that. Matthew and Levi. But it's Matthew. And Jesus then does something that would have absolutely stunned anyone who saw him. He calls Matthew to follow him. He calls Matthew to become one of his followers. Matthew will become one of his disciples, one of his twelve. He calls Matthew to follow him. Now think about that. This is God's son. This is the Messiah, the Holy One, the King of Kings. And he calls Matthew, who would have been one of the most hated people living in that area, to follow him. Now to call Matthew, that is not to overstate it. Matthew was a tax collector. And I've said this before, but we get the wrong idea of tax collectors. Today, no one likes tax collectors, but we respect them. They work for the IRD. They've got an honourable job. Tax collectors back then were not like that. Tax collectors were scum, and they were awful. They, they were hated by the Jews because the tax collectors were Jews, but they were working for the Roman oppressors, and they extorted money, giving it to Rome, the oppressors, and lining their own pockets for themselves. And they used deception and deceit and bullying. They made huge profits at the expense of others. They worked on the Sabbath for Gentiles. Can you see the picture that I'm painting of what they were hated? Tax collectors were considered so bad they weren't allowed to take part in synagogue life and they were considered so untrustworthy they weren't allowed to be called as a witness in a court of law. Lawyers didn't trust tax collectors. That's how... And I shouldn't joke about it, and I apologise to the back corner, I, I, I shouldn't joke about it because to joke about it is to minimise it. I don't want to minimise it. These were awful people, the tax collectors. These weren't people who sinned in an acceptable way. They, they, they didn't make mistakes that polite society kind of approved of and were okay with. They were a traitor to their nation. They would have been done for treason if it was today. At the moment, we're seeing a, a lot of issues of race relations and race, the evil of racism going on. These were people who betrayed the, the, the lower race for the oppressing race. That's what they were doing. They were working for one against the other. Last week I spoke of the cancel culture that we're part of at the moment, that we're seeing all around us. Uh, I said that I hate it. Hate it. If Matthew was alive in the cancel culture, Matthew's cancelled. This is not something that we approve of. He's gone. There's no doubt about it. He's ostracised. He's cast out. In fact... He was part of the cancel culture, because cancel culture is not new. It comes around and around different stages in history. We will find in a moment that when there's a, a meal at his house, the only people who come to his house are the other tax collectors and sinners, because he's been cancelled. He's been ostracised. He's hated by other people, and I want you to hear this. He's hated by them for a very good reason. This was a wicked man. This was a selfish man. This was in many ways an evil man. But this was a man loved by God and called by Jesus because Jesus came to call sinners he came to call sinners imagine if Jesus was alive today ministering in our cancel culture 
He's obviously got a PR department and a manager and an advisor, and they'd be saying, Jesus, pull out of calling Matthew. You can't be associated with Matthew. This is going to be terrible for your public image because Matthew is awful. What he's done is terrible. The, the people that he's corrupted, he damages his community by what he does. He's, if you're associated with him at any time, now you've called him, but it's not too late, you can pull back, you can release a statement, and you can distance yourself from him, and you can disavow it, and you can say, well, I didn't realise what he's actually like, and he's gone. Jesus doesn't do that because he came to call sinners. Sinners. And you see that as the scene continues. Wonderfully, we see Matthew follow him. He's called, Matthew does it. There would have been a cost for Matthew following Jesus. He walked away from the tax collecting booth. When you follow Jesus, there's always a price. If you're sitting here today and you're thinking about following Jesus, you're not sure, and you think there might be a price to pay in your life, there will be. Because you leave when you follow Jesus, you leave behind the parts of your life that are out, out of line with following Jesus. Being a tax collector in those days was because it was evil. He had to walk away from it, leave it behind. And unlike the, the fishermen who were disciples of Jesus, if, if it didn't work out with Jesus, there would always be fish in the lake and they could always pick up their old job. Matthew would never get back to the tax collecting booth because it would have been snapped up like that by other people who want money and want power. Matthew pays the price. He follows them. I love what Matthew does there. So Matthew goes with Jesus and they end up having dinner at Matthew's house. And as I said a few moments ago, the only people who are going to have dinner with Matthew at Matthew's house are other tax collectors and sinners. It says sinners in, in quotation marks. I don't think it should. What it means by sinners there is the other visible sinners. The Bible's very clear, we're all sinners. But some of us are more secret and better at it than others. There are some people whose sin is out there for everyone to see, and they're the ones who are shunned. They're the ones who are ostracised. All of us are sinners, though. It's just that some of us, it's not as visible. So when it says tax collectors, they were very visible. Everyone knew their sin. It's talking about the other visible sinners, perhaps the prostitutes at that time, that those who it was very clear, well, they're sitting around. And some of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, who've been following Jesus and listening to him, are outraged by Jesus sitting down having a meal with these kind of people. And so they say to Jesus' disciples in verse 11, why does your teacher eat with, with tax collectors and sinners? And here it is in Jesus' reply. Jesus says, verse 12, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That, that's, a bad, that's a big slap to the Pharisees. Because he's quoting Hosea 6. He's quoting the Old Testament. They're religious leaders and teachers. And he's saying, go away and learn what you think you know. That I desire, that's God desires, mercy not sacrifice. We'll come back to that in a moment. But here's the key bit. For I have not come, Jesus says, to call the righteous, but sinners. I have come to call sinners. Jesus came to call sinners. Not cancel them. Not give them what they deserve but call them to follow him. Give them a chance to be forgiven. Give them a chance to be changed. He didn't come to call the righteous. Not that there are any righteous. Romans says, no one is righteous, not even one. 
But some people think they're righteous and therefore they don't need a saviour. Some people think they're righteous and therefore they don't need to follow Jesus. That's the worst kind of person because they'll never follow him because they don't think they need him. We all do. There's no one righteous. But the key thing is who he came to call. Sinners. Me. You. And he's the only hope we've got. All the fasting in the world won't do anything with your relationship with God unless you're following Jesus. I don't care what your diet is. If you're a vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian, is that a thing? Other Arians. It doesn't want to do anything with your relationship with God unless you're following Jesus. I don't care what you read and how much you know. I don't care what your self-help things are and how much you've improved your life or what religious rituals you do. I don't, know, I don't care how much power you've got or money you've got. It will be no use at all unless you've got Jesus. Jesus is all we need and all we need to do is follow him. And following him then brings new birth. You're born again. And it then brings sanctification. We become more and more like him. Matthew's life would never have been the same again after that day because not only did his life involve leaving behind that tax collecting booth, but he gained a saviour. He received an inheritance that would never perish, spoil or fade. He would soon receive the Holy Spirit and get a new heart. He would get the power to say no to sin. He got a changed life. Because Jesus calls sinners. I want anyone who is here this morning who isn't following Jesus to think urgently about doing just that because of this. If you're a sinner, and you are, And I say that knowing my own heart. If you're a sinner here today, and you are, Jesus came to call you. And you don't have to worry about whether you're good enough to follow him. He came to call sinners. He came to forgive those who need forgiveness, no matter who you are or what you've done. No matter who's shunned you in the past or how you've felt, he came to call you. Follow him. Leave behind your tax collector's booth. There may be a cost. There will be a cost. But he's worth it. Follow him. Follow him. Do it. So that's the second. He came to call sinners. But just in one moment, let me finish by, based on these verses, let me give a warning to you and to me, for those of us who follow Jesus. It's a warning I think we should take from this passage. And the warning is this. Let's not let our attitude become the same as the Pharisees. Somehow, the Pharisees, and you've got to remember, the Pharisees knew the Bible. They lived what we would call a good life, a Christian life. But somehow, they had thought that God was for them and against sinners. They'd somehow come to the the thought that they were a different class than everyone else. And they looked down on others. We might say they cancelled others. They didn't want anything to do with them. Well, not Jesus. He called sinners. And he ate with them. One of the tricky things about becoming a Christian is we change. I've just said all the way through this passage that when you become a Christian, you change. And these changes are good. Our lifestyle changes. We do more things that please God and we do less things that don't please God. And we, we, we get Christian friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are a blessing to us and they encourage us and strengthen us and challenge us and hold us to account. And all those things are good. But sometimes when those things happen, we can change the way we see ourselves, which leads to changing the way we see others. 
Slowly, surely, we probably would never say it to ourselves, we probably even don't even realise it, but we can sometimes start to think we're better than others because our lives have changed. We can sometimes think God's lucky to have us or uh, he's for us because we're a certain way and do certain things and therefore he must be against others who are different. We'd never say that, but it could creep into us. It did with the Pharisees. And we become in our lifestyles separated more from sinners because we're surrounded more by Christians. And there's good reasons for that and benefits of that, but you can see where I'm going with it. Then it becomes, well, why would you eat with them? Learn this, Jesus said to the Pharisees. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. As I said, that comes from Hosea 6. And what Jesus is saying here, he was speaking to Pharisees who were great on the sacrifices. They did all the right things, but their heart was in the wrong place. When they saw these sinners, and they were sinners, they didn't have mercy on them. They felt above them. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. We've got to check our attitudes and our hearts. And I worry that in today's culture, this culture I've talked about for a couple of weeks, I'm probably going to talk about it more because it's so destructive, this kind of thinking is even more likely because we only hang around with the people we agree with. We only speak to the people we think are right and we get rid of anyone we think is wrong. And sometimes what the wrong people are saying and doing is terrible. But Jesus came to call sinners. How are we going to treat them? The way we treat our enemies has never been more important. We're to love them. Now loving, I said this again last week too, loving your enemy doesn't mean always being nice. Loving and being nice is not synonymous. Sometimes loving will be challenging. Sometimes loving will be decrying or debating or those sorts of things. But it will be done for their good, not just for me to vent and win an argument. It will be done for their blessing, not just for me to be right and look like I've said the right things in front of all the people I think are important. It will be done for different reasons. It will be done when we remember that we were a sinner called by Jesus. That's who we are. I say all the time, I love in our Anglican liturgy, the confession that we say every week. We've already said it this morning. And some people say, well, I don't like the confession, Jay, because it's gloomy, because we we say we're sinners. But we're not. We're forgiven, and there's truth in that. But it's not gloomy, the confession. If you think the confession's gloomy, put your hand up. No, don't put your hand up. But you haven't thought about it enough, because the prayer at the end of confession every time is a reminder that we're forgiven. Jeff drew our attention to it this morning. So it's never gloomy. We remember that we're forgiven. But the fact that we do it together every time means that we're never going to get above ourselves if we do it genuinely because we remember we're all sinners who were called by a wonderful saviour. And that will mean that I'm not looking down on others. I'm reaching out to them and pointing them to the great saviour, the one who came to call them, the one who died on the cross for them. And it will change my attitude to those who don't know him. I pray that we will live that out. Let me pray now. Father, we thank you for our Saviour, the one who came to call sinners. We thank you that you've called us. We thank you that our lives have changed. I want to pray for anyone here this morning who isn't following Jesus. I pray that they would start to do that now. That they would live for him, walk away from that tax collecting booth and know the forgiveness and change and and wonder that's available in him. But for those of us who do, I pray that we would hold on to that, knowing what you've done for us, because it will change the way we treat others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.